0: You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 61 of Girl Speak, Incredible Queens, Part 3. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, Program Developer for Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. Today, We're continuing our Incredible Queen series with a look into one of my favorite periods of time, ancient history. Granted, ancient history covers a lot of cultures and time periods, so much that it's simply not possible to discuss all of the incredible queens of this period in one podcast. Today, I'd like to introduce you to three figures that I find incredibly fascinating and complex. We'll start with the one closest in time to us, Amon queen of the Marodic kingdom of Kush, known as Kandake. The kingdom of Kush, from about 1050 BC to 250 CE, existed around what is now modern-day Sudan. In the height of its power, around 700 BC, the Kush controlled nearly all of Egypt and ruled as pharaohs. By the time Amon came to power, they had been pushed back to Moreau, this is where we know the most about her, from Merotic culture, which refers to her as Kendake or ruling queen. problem with her story is that the archaeology and research surrounding Nubia, Kush, and Moreau is rather slim and contradictory, and we have yet to confirm that Kendake is Amanarenas. Little is known about her early life. Most of what we know is from Strabo's account of the Roman war with the Kushites from 27 to 22 BC. In it, he states that Amenarenus was a masculine woman who had lost an eye. At this time, the Kushites, ruling from Moreau, were not under Roman control. The Romans had succeeded in conquering Egypt, but had yet to conquer the Meroetic Kush who lived south of Egypt. In 24 BC, the Roman prefect of Egypt left on an expedition to Arabia. The Kushites, led by Amenarenus, took advantage of his absence and launched an attack on the Roman cities in Egypt, both to take back what had once been theirs and to assert their freedom from Roman rule. They successfully took over Cyrene, Philae, and Elephantina, taking Roman statues from those cities and transporting them back to Moreau. One of these statues is now known as the Moreau Head. It was found by archaeologists on the steps of a temple in Moreau. Because the statue was dismembered, it's believed to have been placed there as a sign of defiance of Roman rule. Unfortunately for the Kushites, a new Roman prefect came to Egypt and pushed them back to Napata, the Morotic capital at the time. Aman Arenas made one last move to try to turn the tide of war, attacking a garrison at Premnus with an army of many thousand men, but her efforts were thwarted. By 20 BC, the Kushites sent ambassadors to negotiate peace with the Romans. The treaty may have ended favorably for the Kushites. As Sarbo states, the ambassadors obtained all that they desired. But what happened to Queen Amarenus is unknown. Like most of her life, Amarenas remains shrouded in mystery. We found no artifacts to bear witness to her life, nor are there any accounts from the Kushites themselves. Like most ancient women, and many queens, what we know of her will likely never come from her own words and thoughts. Instead, we must simply believe that she exists, a fierce warrior queen who ruled her people, fought for her freedom, and was likely far more complex than we will ever know. Today, her legacy lives on in one simple word, Candace, a name derived from the word Kandake, ruling queen. Next, we travel to Macedonia to meet a princess named Olympias. She's someone you might recognize from modern-day film. In the film Alexander, she is played by Angelina Jolie. That's right, Olympias is none other than the mother of Alexander the Great, one of the most legendary figures in ancient history. But being his mother isn't the only thing that makes Olympias so fascinating. Olympias was born around 375 BC to the king of the Molossians, one of the greatest tribes in Epirus, which was somewhere in modern-day Greece. During her father's reign, the Molossians became a more sedentary people, building cities and starting administrations similar to other civilizations of the time. They allied with the Macedonians in 358, when Olympias was just 17 years old. As part of the alliance, Olympias became Philip's wife, cementing not just an alliance, but also a romance. According to Plutarch, the couple had previously met when they were initiated into the mysteries of Kibiri at the Sanctuary of the Great Gods on the island of Semothrace. The night before their wedding, Olympias received a portent, or an omen of sorts. She dreamed that a thunderbolt struck her body, kindling a great fire, Whose divided flames dispersed themselves all about and then were extinguished. After their marriage, Philip would also have a portent dream, where he put a seal upon his wife's womb in the figure of a lion. Within a year of their marriage, Olympias had given birth to her first child, Alexander. She would also later give birth to a daughter, Cleopatra. And no, not the Cleopatra you're thinking about. Olympias had a very rocky marriage with Philip. Both were jealous and volatile and eventually became estranged. But it wasn't just their jealous nature that led to this. It was Olympias' fascination with snakes. Olympias was a follower of the Orphic rites. As Plutarch stated in his account of Alexander's life, Olympias affected these divine possessions more zealously than other women and carried out these divine inspirations in wilder fashion. She would entertain visitors with many tame serpents often having the snakes come out of winnowing baskets of ivy, or coiling themselves around her. In fact, she was so devoted to her practice that she even slept with snakes. And it wasn't exactly Philip's favorite way to encourage marital relations. One night, he found a snake sleeping peacefully next to Olympias, and believed it to be a god. As Plutarch states, this scene dulled Philip's affection so much that he no longer visited her bed, fearing that she would cast enchantments on him. Whatever the truth behind these stories, it's clear that Olympias was a devoted follower of the Orphic rites, and that her devotion was so intense, it scared her husband away. Their marriage got even worse in 337. Just 20 years into their marriage, Philip took another wife, the noble Macedonian woman Eurydice. Olympias retreated to her brother's kingdom in voluntary exile, taking Alexander with her. Only a year later, Philip attempted to estrange Olympias even further by marrying their daughter to Olympias's brother. It might have been Olympias' breaking point. Though her role was never confirmed, that night, Philip was killed by one of his own personal bodyguards. Shortly after, Olympias ordered Philip's other wife and child to be executed, securing her son's position as king of Macedonia. Olympias would go on to become one of the key figures in Alexander's achievements. She would regularly correspond with him while he was on military campaigns to expand his empire. She also played a role in Alexander's claim to Egypt, stating that Alexander's father wasn't Philip, it was Zeus, king of the gods, who had been the thunderbolt in her dream. Unfortunately for Olympias, no matter her intentions, Alexander became estranged from her as well. By 3.30, only seven years into Alexander's campaigns, Olympias had again retreated to her brother's kingdom in Epirus. After her son's death in 3.23, Olympias avoided conflict for a while, but it came knocking on her door as the successors of Alexander battled it out over who would rule. Eventually, Olympias came to the rescue of Alexander's wife and son, winning battles and executing hundreds in attempts to secure their throne. But her efforts failed, and Olympias was eventually stoned to death by the families of her victims. Finally, we end with one of my favorite women from ancient Egypt. And no, it's not Cleopatra. Though the infamous last pharaoh of Egypt is fascinating, and could have a podcast all her own, my favorite is one you may encounter the next time you visit the metropolitan museum of art or any major museum for that matter her name was Hatshepsut and she would have a life so complex that we're still trying to figure it all out Hatshepsut was born in 1507 bc the daughter of pharaoh tutmos I and his primary wife Ames. she beat the odds in ancient egypt surviving past the age of five, when many others did not. She grew up beside the other children of her father, including her half-brother, Thutmose II. She was tutored, learning how to read and write in the sacred script, and traveled with the royal family, though most believe she was primarily raised in Thebes. Yet, Hesepsut was special. She was the eldest daughter of the king by his primary wife, known as the king's great-wife. In fact, an inscription from Hagar el marwah shows her father and mother traveling up the Nile to Kyrgyz with the crown prince and a princess whose name is obscured and could be Heshepsut. To travel with her father implies that Heshepsut had an important role to fill in her life and needed to know how to rule effectively. She would also fulfill another important role, a high religious office entitled God's Wife of Amun, In this role, she was an influential priestess, initiated into a sacred mystery with the god Amun. Her role was second only to the high priest, outranking all other religious officials in the country. It came with estates and palaces and her own treasury and administration. You can equate it to a modern-day Vatican, with a Shepset almost at its center. She was only nine or ten years old. It was to prove a formative part of her later life. An inscription of hers at Karnak states, I acted under his command. It was he who led me. I did not plan a work without his doing. It was he who gave directions. And wow, did he, meaning Amen, give directions. Within a few years, all of Heshepsut's older siblings had died, leaving her not only the eldest, but now the next queen of Egypt. She became engaged to Thutmose II, the half-brother she played with as a child. Thutmose II was in constant bad health and younger than Hatshepsut. His mummy shows signs of an enlarged heart, indicative of severe health problems. Soon after their engagement, tragedy struck again, and Thutmose II and Hatshepsut found themselves the new rulers of Egypt. Hatshepsut was only 12 years old. Given her husband's bad health, and his death only three years later, Hatshepsut quickly became co-regent for her husband, and later, her infant son and then nephew. But Ko is misleading. In fact, Hatshepsut would rule Egypt in almost every way, becoming a female pharaoh, and one of the most powerful in history. During her rule, Hatshepsut managed to consolidate power around herself, gathering allies while strengthening her claim to the throne. By the time she took over as full-fledged pharaoh, she had built upon her claim to become nearly indisputable. She linked her claim to the story of divine birth, claiming that both her father, Thutmose I, and the god Amun had instructed her to assume the royal titles. She dressed and represented herself in masculine clothing, mixing both masculine and feminine elements to form one of the most unique statuary collections and artifact trails of ancient Egypt. As pharaoh, Hesepsut would have many great achievements. She successfully gained the support of government officials, including the high priest of Amun. She also conducted successful military campaigns into Nubia, bringing back slaves and resources to strengthen Egypt. She established trade networks, which would bring the first recorded attempt to transplant foreign trees into the historical record. She conducted massive building campaigns, becoming one of the most prolific builders in ancient Egypt. Her buildings were grander and more numerous than any before, and she produced so much statuary that almost every major museum in the world has one of her making. She restored the precinct of Mutt at the temple of Karnak, revitalizing the monuments to an ancient goddess. She erected twin obelisks, which became the tallest in the world at the entrance of the temple one of which still stands as the tallest surviving obelisk on Earth. Another of her obelisks would become famously known as the Unfinished Obelisk, a broken one left at its quarrying site in Aswan that became a key to our understanding of ancient Egyptian construction methods. Hatshepsut didn't stop there. She built the Temple of pakhet a cavernous underground temple cut into rock cliffs and later admired by the ancient Greeks. She also built a massive mortuary temple on the west bank of the Nile, near the entrance to the Valley of the Kings, becoming the first pharaoh to build near the valley. It included the Jezer Jezeru, a colonnaded structure built in perfect symmetry nearly 1,000 years before the Parthenon and surrounded by lush gardens. In all of these projects, one element of Hatshepsut's life remains the most fascinating of all, her romance with Senenmet. Originally her daughter's tutor, Senenmut rose to power as Hatshepsut rose, eventually becoming the administrator for many of her building projects. As Kara Cooney details in her book, The Woman Who Would Be King, their relationship is likely far more complex than we'll ever know. Senenmut's own statues and monuments would almost solely focus on Hatshepsut and her daughter, alluding to a deep relationship with both that could almost hint at a lasting love affair. Upon her death, around 40 years of age, rule passed to Heshepset's nephew, Thutmose III, the infant child whose regency had catapulted her to Pharaoh. Though technically a co-regent for the entirety of her rule, Heshepset's reign had been nearly absolute, but her legacy would die soon after her reign. Senenmet, her lover, and her only daughter, would disappear from the historical record, superseded by those that the new pharaoh put into power. Twenty-five years after her death, Thutmose III would begin a campaign to remove Hatshepsut's image from Egypt, reassigning statues and images to his male ancestors, instead of the co-regent who had secured his throne. His campaign would last the rest of his life, as Hatshepsut's images were numerous. Despite all she had done for him, Thutmose III relegated his aunt to the status of intercessor. He no longer had need of her legitimacy to back his own, and had established his connections to male ancestors that would support his rule long after Heshepsut was forgotten. Yet, some images remained, for Heshepsut's use of male and female pronouns confused the destroyers. So today, we still find the original traces of her throughout Egypt, as well as images where she is only portrayed as a wife and queen. Heshepsut's tomb was robbed only 500 years after her death, the gilded objects, statuary, gems, and linens taken by thieves. Her body, like the intimate details of her life, may be lost to time. Yet her legacy remains, hinted at in the inscriptions and monuments that remain, the artifacts we piece together, and the continued search to uncover the true story of this truly incredible queen. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on June 30th. Also, please help to support future production of Girl Speak by visiting our website at www.girlmuseum.org and clicking Donate. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. If you'd like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the Internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.